All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to begin. It is great to see everybody back. Um, we are listening to some music that probably no one knows what this is unless you cheated and looked. Does anybody have any idea what this is? It's not the Beatles. That's always a good guess, but... No, it is um, a group that you've never heard of, probably. But if you were a millennial, if you were a millennial, not to age anyone here, if you were a millennial, you probably would have heard of them. It's a group called the Oh Hellos. Um, the Oh Hellos are pretty well known. Uh, they tour nationally, and they are interestingly fascinated with C.S. Lewis, and particularly with the Screwtape Letters. And they did an entire album that is called Dear Wormwood, which was inspired by the Screwtape Letters. And that song we are listening to is all about how our understanding of the devil and the forces of evil evolves and changes as we get older. And so it starts off in the song talking about when I was little, everything I was scared of I thought lived under my bed. But unfortunately, as he got older, he realized that the face of evil was Satan and that there, there was spiritual warfare going on all around. So um, very interesting. Uh, let me start us with a word of prayer, and then we will, we will jump right in. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gift of this time together, and we thank you most especially for the gift of this book, The Screwtape Waters. Lord, we thank you for inspiring C.S. Lewis to write this book, and we pray that you would use this book to strengthen us in our faith, to help us develop a stronger understanding of what it means to serve you in a world where we are under attack and how we might live in such a way that the joy of your kingdom flows out of our lives. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a couple of words of introduction. Um, most of y'all were here at some point in a different class. Um, so you know sort of there are different levels that you can do. You can be on the beach, which means you show up and you are a warm body. Um, and you can even sleep if you want to. It's all good. Or you can be snorkeling, which means you come and you pay attention and you read some of the handouts. Or you can scuba dive, which means you come, you pay attention, you read all the handouts. And in the emails that I send that have links to more scholarly things, you can follow those. And I am perfectly happy to have you or your friends at any level that you want to be involved. So I'm just delighted you're here. So uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the screw tape letters. Um, the screw tape letters is one of Lewis's most popular books, but I also would submit to you that even among people who have read the screw tape letters, that it is a book that is underappreciated. There, there's much more depth to the screw tape letters than a lot of people realize. And so I think that it's something that has a lot to say to us, particularly in the moment that our culture finds itself in right now. Uh, one of the reasons the Screw Tape Letters is an important book uh, just in Lewis studies is that it's really the book that made Lewis famous, particularly in the United States. And you can see in this picture of the Time magazine cover um, from 1947, you can see uh, the devil over here uh, representing Screw Tape. And you can also see if you've got really good eyes, Oxford C.S. Lewis his heresy, colon, Christianity. Some things in academia have not changed that much. So uh, we're going to take a somewhat different approach to screw tape than if you've studied it in the past. I would suggest strongly uh, that if you don't own a copy of screw tape, that you get a copy. Um, there are lots of them around. You can get them really cheap, used ones in excellent condition from Amazon if you want to do that. Uh, 
But before we do that, I want us to focus in on the scripture verse, which is going to be the one that we use each class, because I think it is one of the most powerful passages in the scriptures that inform us about the spiritual battle in which we are engaged as believers in Jesus Christ. So this is a little bit longer than the one that we used before, um, but I think we can do it. So if y'all will say this with me. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And there's a lot in there. We could spend the whole semester just talking about that, but... Part of what I want you to understand from that is that you would never, if you were in World War II or if you want to go back to the Middle Ages or whatever, if there were a battle raging outside of where you were, you would never think about going outside without armor on. And the problem that so many of us have today is that we forget that we are in a battle. We think we're just walking across the park. And so we, we forget about the spiritual armor that is so important. And that's part of why screw tape is such a beautiful tool. So there are a couple of reasons why I think screw tape is particularly relevant today. And the first one is what I was just saying understanding the battle that we are in. Because we don't like, particularly in our cultural moment, We like syncretism. We like to bring everything together and say, everything is all good. (laughs) It's all good. And, you know, this really started in the 60s, you know, have a Coke and a smile, you know, that whole thing. And there, there are a lot of things that do bring us together. And there's a beauty in the brotherhood of man and all of those kinds of things. It's especially important to remember on days like September 11th. But the flip side of that is that there is such a thing as evil. There is such a thing as evil. And it is up to the church and to Christians to be informed and to know how to resist evil, um, to overcome evil with good. Uh, Romans talks beautifully about that. But this idea of understanding that we're in the battle is really important. Another thing that's really important is learning how to think Christianly. Most of us don't like to think at all. Um, it is work, you know? And uh, as, uh, who was it, Winnie the Pooh, I think, said, thinking is dangerous business. Uh, thinking is hard work, and we live in a place where we are spoon-fed by all sorts of different kinds of media what our opinion should be about things. And the idea that you would actually go and research an issue is foreign to most of us these days. And so this idea of learning how to think Christianly and developing a Christian worldview is hugely important. And that is one of the key components of screw tape letters because you see this clash of the worldview of Satan and his minions versus the worldview of the kingdom of God and people that are following him. So this book will help show us about that. Then, lessons on the psychology of temptation. Temptation is, unfortunately, one of those concepts 
because temptation is closely associated with the three-letter word that starts with S, sin. Um, sin is a very unfashionable word, in case you didn't know that. A lot of theologians are trying to get rid of the idea of sin and saying that sin is something that hampers our self-actualization. And so uh, basically whatever you want to do is just fine, and there is no such thing as sin. So if there's no sin, then there's not any temptation either because you might as well just go ahead and do whatever you feel like. But obviously that is not what the Christian understanding of sin is. And so this whole idea of temptation and how temptation works, particularly when we're in a culture that likes to run after temptation, um, just watch TV, Netflix, whatever you want to watch, and just look at what's on there. And it all looks like the preamble in Galatians before you get to the fruits of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are plain, and then there's this whole list, and that's what's on TV. And that's what we think is normal. But the psychology of temptation is really important. And then the next point, and this is one that I think doesn't get taught very often out of screw tape, but I think it's hugely important, and I can't wait to delve into this with y'all, is looking at habits to cultivate that deepen your faith in Christ. Because part of what you can see as you read Screwtape is what Satan's trying to stop the Christian from doing. And so if you go through it and pull out all those things that the Christian's being stopped from that would actually be really good for him, you can get a great lesson about what it means to be able to follow Jesus in a bold way. And that leads us to the last part, living a boldly Christian life. One of the great things in Screwtape is there's a distinction that is always being made about a Christian who gives lip service to the Christian faith versus someone who is actually living it out. And that, I think, is very important, at least for me. So uh, a little bit of background on C.S. Lewis. I think most of y'all have been through Uh, this before, so I'll be very brief here, but Lewis had a very difficult childhood. Um, He had an idyllic childhood for the first six years of his life, and then his mother got sick and died uh, right after Lewis had turned eight years old. His father had a nervous breakdown. Um, It was a disaster, and Lewis was shipped off to boarding school in a foreign country right before his ninth birthday and went to the boarding school uh, where the headmaster was later uh, taken away and put in the insane asylum uh, because he was so terrible. So he had a terrible, terrible time. He had prayed as a little boy for his mother to get well, and his mother died, and so that was the end of his childhood faith. He then later met some very prominent atheist teachers and became... Uh, a pronounced atheist, not just a shy atheist, but an evangelical atheist. And uh, he grew and grew in his scholastic career. He was brilliant. He took a triple first at Oxford, which is like graduating summa cum laude with a triple major. Uh, Quite, quite remarkable. Uh, And he was very, very, very articulate and good at logic and argument. And he would take down any Christian that tried to argue with him. But then J.R.R. Tolkien came into his life. They're both geniuses, professors at Oxford um, in their 20s, which was unheard of. Um, They found one another. They had love for many of the same things. And through Tolkien's friendship uh, and a lot of prayer, Lewis eventually converted to Christianity. And then he became uh, someone who took all of those gifts that he had used in being an evangelical atheist, and turned them toward the Christian faith. And through that, he brought together this group of brilliant and deeply Christian men around him called the Inklings, uh, who were to have a great impact on him. And then he started doing a lot of writing after he converted to Christianity. His conversion uh, is variously dated, uh, sort of 1931, 1932 era, his first Christian books, The Pilgrim's Regress, uh, which is uh, a takeoff on John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. 1936, The Allegory of Love, probably the greatest work on 
um, Courtly Love in Literature. It is an academic book that is still used in doctoral programs today. Um, and then he wrote Out of the Silent Planet, which you have to think about. This is bizarre. Here's somebody writing the best book ever in the history of the world on the English literary tradition of courtly love. And then some same guy writing a sci-fi novel. Um, <laughs> Oxford didn't like that very much. Right after Out of the Silent Planet came out, uh, Hitler invades Poland. Uh, England declares war on Germany September 3rd, 1939. And World War II starts in earnest. And as we talked about, for those of you that were in the last class, we don't understand today how really apocalyptic that time was, that people really thought Germany was going to cross the channel, um, that England was going to be annihilated. Um, there's death raining from the skies. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless. Uh, it was just an unbelievable period. But Lewis was incredibly productive in that time period. He wrote a book on the problem of pain uh, and then started lecturing uh, on Christianity, uh, what he called his hot gospeling to members of the RAF. This was a very poignant ministry because many of the people that he gave these talks to then took off on flying missions that they never returned from. Um, Lewis then, during the Blitz, was brought on by the BBC in the midst of the national despair going on um, to do these lectures about the Christian faith that later became mere Christianity. And right after that, um, and really at the same time that's going on, he's writing the screw tape letters and then a very wonderful academic work that's called A Preface to Paradise Lost, which is probably one of the great introductions to Milton's epic poem um, that's still used today. So this is kind of uh, where Lewis was in his life at that point. And one of the things that was interesting is when you look at the context for the writing of these letters, um, tonight, we're mostly going to be doing background and framework before we jump into the letters themselves. But this context is really important. So Lewis is in Oxford in wartime, and that is not um, a happy place to be. There are blackout curtains everywhere. Lewis himself is one of the wardens who goes around checking. Uh, he is working with the air raid signals. And people thought that Oxford was going to be bombed at any moment because they were, Hitler was trying to take out things that were really significant in English culture. So they really thought they could die at any moment. So that's an important backdrop. The other thing that is really interesting that you don't hear a lot of people talk about, but it's really interesting that Lewis is writing the Screwtape Letters and a preface to Paradise Lost at the same time. And I'm not going to take you off in an English doctoral <laughs> lecture about Paradise Lost, although that could be really, really fun. Um, but I will restrain myself. How many of y'all have read Paradise Lost ever, even if it was 50 years ago? All right. Well, I would encourage you, even if you're on the beach, <laughs> even if you're on the beach, I would just encourage you to read at least a little bit of Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost is a retelling of the story of Adam and Eve and Satan and the garden. Um, it is beautifully, beautifully written. And Lewis does a phenomenal job of being kind of an apologist for the work in this preface. And the preface is very sprightly. Um, has anybody in here ever read that book, the preface to Paradise Lost, besides me? Um, I can't find it. Jane and I were looking for it. I don't know what I've done with it, but it may appear next week if I can find it. But it's a really great book. And part of the reason that I think Paradise Lost is so important because it talks about Satan and evil and the fall. And so that is all the backdrop. Remember, Lewis is a huge literary scholar. That's all going on in the back of his head while he's writing the screw tape letters. And that's important. So one of the things that you will see, um, some of these comments from these professors, uh, this preface is an essential work in understanding the literary approach of C.S. Lewis and the theological assumptions of Paradise Lost. Still the most lucid, useful, entertaining introduction to Milton's poem that anyone has contrived to write. Um, Leland Riken, who some of y'all may be familiar with, is the president of Wheaton College, 
uh, where the Marion Wade Center is, which is one of the great C.S. Lewis research centers. Um, this Riken is the son of the guy who was for years pastor of the 10th, I always get this wrong, I think it's 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, who's one of Jeff Miller's three or four great heroes, um, but Leland is his son. And he uh, got hooked on Paradise Lost and made his academic career on Paradise Lost after reading Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost as a sophomore in college. And I want to just read this little quotation from Reich, and he says, I think that Christian readers should begin by reminding themselves that they live not only by a Christian worldview, but also by a Christian world picture. In addition to the great doctrines of the Christian faith, we live by the great images of the faith. Milton's poem puts us in touch with the images of the Christian faith, images of Satan and hell, of God and heaven, of paradise and original perfection, of temptation and fall, of sin and of salvation. And we could sit there for a while, but I, I want you to just think about that. Think about how, for most of Christian history, things like literature and art and stained glass windows and all those things are continually bombarding you with pictures of the Christian faith and of the biblical story. And now we get bombarded with pictures of advertising. Um, you know, it's not the same thing. And losing that... Um, what Lewis would call earthiness of Christianity, the pictures of it, the people, the scenery of it, that is a real loss in understanding the reality of the biblical narrative. So that's part of why Paradise Lost is something that is still important. So it's interesting to think about that being sort of the framework that Lewis is writing in. But the inspiration for Screwtape, this is one of the few works of Lewis that we directly know exactly how it came to be written. And the first thing that happened is on July 20th, 1940, Lewis wrote a letter to his brother, Warney. Remember, this is in the thick of the blitz going on in England, and Lewis has invited his friend Humphrey Havard, uh, who was one of the Inklings over, to listen to Hitler's speech on the radio because Hitler's broadcasting these propaganda speeches. And this particular speech is a famous one. My last appeal to Great Britain, a great empire will be destroyed. Well, that's kind of a grim title. And listen to what Lewis writes. Humphrey came to see me last night, not in his medical capacity. He was also Lewis's doctor. And we listened to Hitler's speech together. I don't know if I'm weaker than other people, but it is a positive revelation to me that while the speech lasts, it is almost impossible not to waver a little. Statements which I know to be untrue all but convince me, at any rate for the moment, if only the man says them unflinchingly. And if you look at Screwtape and its bombastic tone and all of its rhetoric about, yes? Was that in English that Hitler did that? You know, I honestly don't know. I would imagine that it was in German. Yeah, Lewis spoke German. Um, but that's a good question. I'll get back to you on that. Uh, but the interesting thing is a lot of the way Screwtape talks and the way he argues is not dissimilar to Nazi propaganda in some ways. So that's an interesting backdrop. And then this part I love. So the Sunday... Following that, Lewis slept in and missed the 8 o'clock service at his church. So if you've ever slept in and missed church, don't feel bad. <laughs> and it gets even better. Um, he'd been out for a few weeks because he'd been sick, and he was trying to go to the early service because they had an organist that picked what he thought were really smarmy hymns, and he just couldn't abide them. So he tried to go to the 8 o'clock to get away from the music. But he overslept. So he went to the midday service, and there was this clergyman that Lewis just had no use for, who was a pretty liberal theologian, and Lewis thought one of the most boring preachers he had ever heard in his life. So he's sitting there in the pew in the Holy Trinity Headington, and he's doodling on a piece of paper during the sermon. And as he's doodling during the sermon that he's not paying any attention to, 
he is struck by an idea for a book. And he says, before the service was over, one could wish these things came more seasonably. (laughs) I was struck by an idea for a book, which I think might be both useful and entertaining. It would be called As One Devil to Another, and would consist of letters from an elderly retired devil to a young devil who has just started work on his first patient. The idea would be to give all the psychology of temptation from the other point of view. So this upside-down pattern of spiritual direction, the other point of view, was born in that moment, and Lewis goes on to give some examples and a voice that would eventually develop screw tape's intellectual accent. So next time you get bored in a sermon, you might want to pray for inspiration. God might turn you into an incredible author who changes the world. So you never know. You never know what may happen. But I love that out of all of that, sleeping late, having to go to a service he didn't want to, in spite of all that, the fact that he was there in church, even though the sermon was really boring, God used that moment to inspire him to do something wonderful that has impacted the lives of millions of people. So that, I think, is very interesting. It also is interesting that Lewis talks about how writing this book affected him in a way that none of his other writing affected him. And he says that one of the interesting things about this book is there are actually three different prefaces to it, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the one that comes from the uh, paperback version that came out in the U.S. in 1961, he shared this insight. He said, though I had never written anything more easily, I never wrote with less enjoyment. Though it was easy to twist one's mind into the diabolical attitude It was not fun or not for long. The strain produced a sort of spiritual cramp. The work into which I had to project myself while I spoke through screw tape was all dust, grit, thirst, and itch. Every trace of beauty, freshness, and geniality had to be excluded. It almost smothered me before I was done. And I think that is, that's a really important insight on a lot of levels. One of the things that we've talked about uh, in previous classes is Lewis's very high view of the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness, and how important it is for Christians to cultivate those, to focus on those, to seek after those things, to set your minds on those things. And what he's saying here is that when he had to consciously exclude beauty and truth and goodness and focus only on the kinds of things that Satan would focus on, that it had a really bad effect on his own spiritual life. And that um, smothering is is an interesting word for it because he'll use that word in screw tape on the other side about the smothering presence of people who are praying. So... It is uh, an interesting insight. So the way that this book first appeared is it appeared as a serial in a newsletter that was run by the Anglican Church that was very popular in the 1940s. It was called The Guardian. And so they published some of Lewis's articles, and Lewis sent them uh, screw tape, and they serialized all 31 of the letters and they ran in weekly installments starting in May of 1941. And they proved to be very popular. And so when Lewis published the book, he gathered those together, dedicated them to Tolkien. But the funny thing was that there was a letter to the editor from a country clergyman in England to The Guardian canceling his subscription because he said much of the advice given in these letters seems to be not only erroneous, but positively diabolical. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. That's great. But one of the interesting things, so this is the kind of, I'm sorry, I'm such a nerd about stuff like this, but I think this is fascinating. Um, So part of what was happening during this is the blitz is going on. Lewis was worried that the typescript and the manuscript 
were both going to get blown up in the Blitz, and he would lose it. So he sent the typescript to the publisher in London, and then he sent the handwritten <clears throat> manuscript to Sister Penelope. And I don't know if anybody remembers about Sister Penelope, but Sister Penelope is one of the great characters in C.S. Lewis's life. This brilliant woman who was part of a... I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Don't worry. I thought it might be the computer. Screw tape trying to talk back. Uh, but the interesting thing was Sister Penelope was a nun um, who was in an abbey right near Oxford, and she was brilliant and deeply Christian. And she and Lewis developed this very strong friendship. And so he sent a manuscript to her for safekeeping. And my favorite story about her is that they, uh, Lewis dedicated one of his books to her and her abbey. And the abbey was called the Abbey of Wantage, W-A-N-T-A-G-E. And so the dedication said, to some ladies of wantage. But when it was, when it was translated into the Italian, uh, the translator got it wrong and translated the inscription to some wanton women. <laughs> Which Sister Penelope thought was hilarious. But anyway, she had the handwritten manuscript of the screw tape letters, and she asked Lewis later, what should I do with this after the war? And he said, sell it, because you can probably get some money for it and use it for the Abbey. So she sold it, and the highest bidder was the New York Public Library which is not a center of C.S. Lewis studies. And so it sat there, and no one remembered that it was there until 2016. And the scholar uh, got a hold of it and started working with it and discovered that there is a different preface in that handwritten manuscript that no one knew about. And the interesting thing about it is that the preface says that these letters were recovered by Dr. Ransom, who's the protagonist in Out of the Silent Planet. And in the space novels, he's talking about how there's this cosmic battle of good and evil, and Earth is the silent planet because we are the bent planet because of our fall. And so there's this whole cosmic battle and he initially, in this handwritten preface, sets screw tape in that context as part of that and says that the letters were originally written in Old Solar, which is the language that was used in Out of the Silent Planet, and translated by Dr. Ransom. Nobody knew anything about that um, until two or three years ago. And you may not care about that, but I think that is just <laughs> so cool. Um, but the interesting thing about it is when we get into looking at this cosmic battle, that framing starts making a lot more sense. So it's very interesting. And he also uses this handwritten preface where he explains that Dr. Ransom came up with these two names, Our Father Below for Satan, who is the, the head of all of the devils and demons, our Father below, and then the enemy for God. Because remember, all of this is in the reverse. It makes it a little confusing sometimes. Don't be like the country clergyman and, and think that the advice is erroneous. So the idea is that um, our Father below is the great dictator bureaucrat of hell, and the enemy is God. So uh, that's your, your fun fact for the day. So this particular uh, portion that we have right now, there's the printout of this is one of the handouts. This is the original typescript preface. And there are a number of things about this that are important. So the first one is that he has dedicated this to Tolkien. Lewis and Tolkien's friendship was one of the most influential things in Lewis's spiritual life. As this book was being written... Uh, Lewis was sharing portions of it with the Inklings. They would read their works out loud to each other. The Inklings helped sharpen this book, and Lewis was grateful for that. But there are these two uh, quotations 
uh, about Satan uh, that he uses right at the beginning. And they're both really important in setting the tone of the book. And the first one, which you may not be able to read, it says, the best way to drive out the devil if he will not yield to the texts of scripture is to jeer and flout him for he cannot bear scorn. Mm -hmm. And that is from Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. And that is a great, that is a boldly Christian way of taking on Satan. We are told that when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And we see Jesus resist the devil by quoting scripture. Uh, So that is a a biblical approach, but this (laughs) jeering and flouting is sort of a step further. And then the next one, from Sir Thomas More, the devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked, which is another uh, great example of that. And so, of course, what Lewis is doing through this whole book is jeering and mocking at Satan and the workings of hell. So uh, I want to just read a little bit of this uh, to you. So the first paragraph is really important. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The sort of script which is used in this book can be very easily obtained by anyone who has once learned the knack, but disposed or excitable people who might make a bad use of it shall not learn it from me. So the first thing here is he says Satan loves people that say, oh, there's no such thing as Satan. That's an old medieval idea. How stupid of you to actually think that. We are more enlightened We don't believe in the devil. What a quaint concept. And Lewis says that Satan and the powers of hell love that because then they have free reign to go do whatever they want. But he also says the other place that you can get into trouble is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in Satan and devil and demons. Sort of the idea that Satan's behind every bush it's kind of like in Saturday Night Live with the church lady. You know, could it be Satan? Uh, you know, where, where you're looking for that, or Flip Wilson and the devil may be doing it, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And the, the, But the more serious part of it is he's talking about people that want to engage in the occult or other types of practices to try to get in league with the dark power. And he says Satan loves that and will exploit that, but that... Obviously, that is a major error as well. And then the second paragraph, uh, and this is so important in understanding the book. He says, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. Remember, scripture tells us he's called the father of lies. So he is a liar. Not everything that Screwtape says should be assumed to be true, even from his own angle. I have made no attempt to identify any of the human beings mentioned in the letters, but I think it is very unlikely that the portraits say of Father Spike, who is a not-so-great priest in the letters, or the patient's mother are wholly just. There is wishful thinking in hell as well as on earth. (laughs) And so part of what's so important here is to remember that the devil is a liar. And this is a lot like the the Hitler speech and what Lewis said about it. That when you have somebody who is spouting off lies and seems very plausible and is a really good speaker and is clearly passionate, it's very easy to think, oh, maybe that's true. And that is one of the great diseases of the age in which we find ourselves. Because there are a lot of people that have big platforms in our culture today who don't have a clue about what they're talking about. And it may not necessarily be evil, but it is uh, stuff that's demonstrably not true, and yet it is, and this comes from all sides of the spectrum, um, but part of what Lewis is trying to say here 
is that we need to be people that are about the truth and people who search for the truth. And some of you will remember from class before that Lewis was a huge admirer of Plato. Now, I don't know how many people have you, how many have ever studied Plato. Has anybody read the Dialogues or the Republic? Okay, well, be that as it may. Sometime I would encourage you to do that. I just, I just got a book that I'm really excited about that many people would say the book's title is an oxymoron, um, but the book is entitled Plato for Pleasure. And, uh, <laughs> but it's written by Adam Fox, who was the dean of divinity, the chaplain at Maudlin College when Lewis was a professor there. And it's really, it's a great little book, but part of what he says is Plato has fallen out of fashion because the whole idea of Plato, his whole idea of dialectics, is searching after truth. And that it is a searching after truth where everybody is engaged in that pursuit. And you are not defensive about your point of view. You want to make the best argument you can on what you think is true. And if somebody has a better idea, then you want to embrace that. And through that process, you move forward as a group toward what truth with a capital T is. And Lewis loved that because he said that Plato's approach anticipated what the gospel teaches us about truth being found in Jesus Christ. And that as you search for truth with an open mind, that is ultimately where Lewis believed that you would end up. So this idea that the devil is a liar is so important to get your head around because even when you start reading these letters, sometimes you start thinking, hmm, that sounds right. <laughs> and then you have to go back and look at it again and think, oh, no, that's not right. So you just have to be on the alert for that. Um, the other thing that he talks about at the end is um, the whole idea of the war and the timing and all of that, um, and that none of that is of any interest to Screwtape, that all they care about is devouring human souls. Mm -hmm. So a couple of points to remember um, from the preface. The first one, that whole idea of scripture and scorn for the devil. Scripture is the sword of the spirit uh, that is used to defeat Satan. Um, scorn for the devil, uh, another very important thing. The equal and opposite errors that we talked about, disbelieving their existence or be, being obsessed with devils. And then so important, to remember that the devil is a liar. The whole idea that the devil is speaking in these letters is um, sort of hard for us to get our heads around because we don't really think of the devil in that way. So if I were to ask you, um, what's your image of the devil? What would be the first thing that comes to mind? Not necessarily right, just what comes to your mind. What's he wearing? He's wearing a red suit. He has horns on his head. What else does he have? A pitchfork and a tail, a fork and tail, and a cape. Yes, exactly. So that is the problem. Is most of us, if I you know, I, I gave you permission to say just what comes to your head. The problem is that that's really what a lot of us think. Yeah, we, we may not consciously think that, but that's sort of the idea that we have of the way that Satan works. And so when we think about temptation, we think about, you know, you're walking down Church Street and a big black limo pulls up with all the windows blacked out. The door opens, a guy in a red suit with horns jumps out swishes his tail, points at you, and says, come do evil. You know, that's the way that we think temptation works. We don't think about temptation as being nice-looking, clean-cut people who are trying to get us to do something that is morally, ethically, and spiritually wrong. And that's part of the genius of Screwtape Letters. There's a passage where Lewis talks about the fact 
that most evil in the world is done in well-lit office buildings by men with clean fingernails wearing nice suits and where there's a quiet work environment. So, you know, it, it has to make us reframe a little bit about the way we think about temptation. Now, one of the great scripture verses about temptation has a little four-letter, I have to be careful with this, a four-letter word that starts with F right before (laughs) temptation. And what is that word? No, not fear. Flee. Flee temptation. What does the word flee mean? Run. How fast? Real fast. Yes, if you are fleeing from something, you are trying with all your might to get away. So scripture tells us that we are to flee temptation. But we live in a culture that says, oh, that's only for weak people. You know, I'm strong. And I'm going to tell a story on myself that's really embarrassing, but that's okay. Humiliation is good for the soul. So I was, I was teaching on this verse when I was doing a Camp St. Christopher session for junior high students. And so I thought, I'm going to do a little skit to illustrate to them about flea temptation because it says, flee temptation and pursue love, righteousness, and peace along with those of a pure heart. And pursue is a big word too. That's like be all in, run, all your energy focused on that. So what I did is I had different people, the audience come out and hold signs. And so one person was temptation, another person was love, one was righteousness, one was peace. And so I had them come out and I said, yeah, what this passage says is that when we see temptation, we're to flee from that person and go chase these other ones. But in fact, what we usually do is when we see temptation come out, we like go hang out with temptation and think, I'm strong, I can handle this. And then we ended up going down. And then I said, but what we're supposed to do is flee. So I had them all go back out. And then the guy with the temptation sign came out, and I pushed off to run. Well, I forgot that I was standing on a scatter rug. (laughs) And so I pushed off, and I literally, I still don't know how I did this. I flew into the air (laughs) about four or five feet in the air, and I was totally horizontal. I mean, I was like looking this way, and I thought, I'm going to crash. And... This is in the Chapel of the Palms at St. Christopher, which is a hard wooden floor, and it's hollow underneath with these big pilings that are a story high. So I landed, and it was like sort of like the end of the world. It's like they had dropped a whale on the floor or something. So the whole building shook and everything else. And it was really, really, really humiliating. And after they realized that I wasn't hurt, which I still don't know how I wasn't hurt, um, they, of course, broke up into riotous <laughs> laughing. They remember that. But the good thing, that's that you're stealing my thunder. The good thing is that every time for the past four years that I've seen any kid that was at that camp session, they all remember flea temptation. So I'm hoping that maybe with that story, that will help you remember to flee temptation when temptation appears. So the the idea, though, of these things is that there are implications for us today. One of the most important things for us to realize, going right back to what we talked about at the beginning, is that we are in a battle. Satan is not dressed in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork, hiding outside the door, getting ready to bite you when you go out the door. However, Satan can be lurking in all sorts of ways um, to try to tempt you away from Scripture. And one of the things that's part of the genius of Screwtape is that very rarely do you see Satan, um, or Wormwood in this case, uh, uh, advising, or Screwtape advising Wormwood to try to tempt the patient to any sort of what we think of as spectacular sins. We always think Satan is like trying to make you do something really horrible 
like go to a strip club and commit adultery or sell heroin to a child or you know something like that, which those are horrible things, don't get me wrong. But what Screwtape is talking about is being mean to your mother, failing to be thankful to people who have served you. I mean, it's very, very interesting to look at what the temptations are because they're not what we would expect. And that's part of what makes it a very uncomfortable book because when you read it, it makes you realize, ooh, these are things that I need to take a look at. So that is very important. And then also this part about the devil being a liar is very important. The whole idea of truth and truth in our culture today uh, is something that Christians have got to get a hold of. And I want to close tonight with the same quotation that uh, I sent out in one of the emails because I think in some ways this quotation sums up what Screwtape is really about. And what he's talking about here, there's a letter that Screwtape, the older devil, has written to Wormwood, the younger devil, about the patient, who's this guy who's become a Christian. And he's very alarmed because the patient is doing what he knows to be right that will help him in his spiritual life, even though his emotional high has gone. So he's continuing to follow Jesus, even though he's not feeling a strong emotional connection. And what Screwtape tells Wormwood, the younger devil, is this. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, that is to do God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, of God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So, with that, uh, let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this book and for the ways that it speaks to where we are right now. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would open each one of our hearts to hear from you in a way that would help us understand what it means to follow you and live boldly for Jesus in this culture where we find ourselves today. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the lies of the devil. We pray that you would help us not to have an unhealthy interest in the devils and that you would also help us not to deny their existence, but to instead dwell in the midst of your truth and what you teach us about spiritual reality. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember the whole armor of God and that through that you would defend us against the assaults of the enemy. Lord, we thank you for this time and pray that you would bless this journey. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.